Hey everyone, and welcome to Real Life Real Crime Daily for Monday, February 13th, 2023, and I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Mike Agavino. Wait, I went second? You went second. There's got to be a reason for that. There is a reason, Jim. <laughs> we have what is known as an Overton upgrade. Oh, an upgrade. <laughs> You know what that can means? it get can it get any better than Woody Everton? It can get better than Woody Overton. We have Cindy Overton with us today. Say hi, Cindy. Hi, Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> Woody, Woody, your voice has gotten deeper, <laughs> or not as deep. <laughs> Woody is on an important real life, real crime daily assignment out of town. I don't know if he's. Is he out hunting hogs or what what is he doing? I don't know. I can't say what I I don't know, Cindy. What's he doing? I played the fifth. (laughs) It's a secret? It's a secret. I do not recall. Double secret probation. Will it become clear to the audience what he was doing when he wasn't here at some point? Uh, I'm sure it will. I'm sure everyone will know at some point. Mm. Possibly in the spring? Possibly in the spring everyone will know. Okay. Is this something they'll be listening to or something they'll view? They'll view? Possibly. It's multi sensory. <laughs> multi Very good. <laughs> Very good. Okay. That's about was, as much teasing as we can probably do, folks. But we Woody, give you enough clues. Woody is out of town working on something that somewhere around springtime you should be able to see. Hopefully, along with millions of others. We're looking forward to that. Yes. As The Rock would say, millions and millions of others. And he is in a dangerous location. Yes. Hint number And we're giving him too much. Wow. Giving him too much now. They're going to figure it out. Dangerous location. I didn't didn't So if you want to guess, (laughs) put it in the comments. What Uh, are you doing? We are going to continue our Crimes of the Century series today. And to start off, maybe we won't tell you who we're talking about yet. We're going to introduce you to some of this person's victims instead. Linda Ann Healy, February 1st, 1974. She was 21 years old from the state of Washington. She was beaten unconscious, carried away, and then decapitated and dismembered post-mortem. Donna Gail Manson on March 12th of 1974 in Washington. She was 19 years old, abducted. They don't know exactly what caused her death and only her skull and mandible were found. Susan Elaine Rancourt, April 17th, 1974. She was 18, also in Washington. She was abducted, and also her exact cause of death is unknown. Only her skull and mandible were ever found. I think when it comes to only having a skull and mandible, we could probably take some guesses at what the cause of death might have been. But, um, but officially, they didn't want to. Roberta... Kathleen Parks, May 6th, 1974. She was 22 years old. State of Washington. 
She was actually abducted, though, from Oregon State University, and the exact cause of death is unknown. Only her skull and mandible were found. Also 22 years old, also Washington, Brenda Carroll Ball on June 1st of 1974 was abducted. No cause of death known, and only her skull and mandible were ever found. And we're starting to see a pattern already. George Ann Hawkins, June 11th, 1974. She was 18, also Washington, abducted from the alley behind her sorority house at the University of Washington. She was strangled and decapitated. Skeletal remains found on September 5th, 1974. Janice Ann Ott, July 14th, 1974. She was 23 years old from the state of Washington. She was abducted from Lake Sammamish State Park in broad daylight, strangled and decapitated. Skeletal remains were found in September of 1974. Denise Marie Nosland, on July 14th of 1974, this 19-year-old from Washington was abducted four hours after Ott from Lake Sammamish State Park in broad daylight. She was strangled and decapitated, and her skeletal remains were found on September of 1974. Then we have a few months off. Nancy Wilcox, October 2nd, 1974. She was only 16 in Utah, abducted in Holiday, Utah. Exact cause of death unknown, body never found. Melissa Ann Smith, October 18th of 1974. She was 17 years old. She was from Utah. She was beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. The killer shampooed Smith's hair and applied makeup to her post-mortem. Her body was found nine days later on a hillside in Summit Park, Utah. And on Halloween night in the third murder of October, in 1974, Laura Ann Amy, who was 17, was found in Utah, beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. Her body was eventually discovered by hikers in American Fork Canyon on November 28, 1974. Deborah Jean Kent, November 8, 1974, 17, in Utah. Abduction, exact cause of death unknown, but minimal skeletal remains were found in 2015. Just her patella was found. Wow. That's pretty crazy. Amazing, the, the, when the killer moved into Utah to kill, seems like they decided to target significantly younger women than they targeted in Washington. Let's see if something comes out on that, but that's it's interesting that they're 16 and 17, the victims in Utah, when they were, they were older in, um, in Washington. Karen Eileen Campbell, January 12th, 1975. She was 23 years old and from Colorado. She was abducted. She had blunt force trauma to the head, 
disappeared from a hotel hallway in Snowmass, Colorado. Her nude body was discovered 36 days later on a dirt road near the hotel. Julie Cunningham, on March 15th of 1975, this 26-year-old was found in Colorado abducted while on the way to a tavern in Vail. Her body was never found. Denise Lynn Oliverson, April 6, 1975. She was 25, also in Colorado, abducted while cycling to her parents' house in Grand Junction, Colorado. Her body was, also, was thrown into the Colorado River. Lynette Dawn Culver, May 6, 1975, 12 years old, in Idaho. Abducted from Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho. Her body was thrown into the Snake River. And on June 28th of 1975, 15-year-old Susan Curtis from Idaho was abducted during a youth conference at BYU. Her body was buried southeast of Utah, but never found. Margaret Elizabeth Bowman, January 15th, 1978. She was 21 in Florida. She was bludgeoned with a piece of oak firewood and then strangled with nylon stockings as she slept at her Chi Omega sorority house, Florida State University. Lisa Levy, January 15th, 1978, 20 years old, in Florida, beaten unconscious, strangled, bit deeply into her left buttock and through the nipple on her right breast, sexually assaulted with a hair mist bottle. The attack with the hairspray bottle was so violent that it ruptured her internal organs. This happened at the Kai O House at Florida State University. Kathy Kleiner was 21, and on January 15, 1978, in Florida, she was bludgeoned as she slept, also in the Kai Omega sorority house at Florida State University. Also at Kai Omega, Karen Chandler, same evening, January 15, 1978, 21 years old. She was bludgeoned as she slept. Kimberly Diane Leach, February 9th, 1978, 12 years old. Abducted from her junior high in Lake City, Florida. Beaten and bleeding from neck lacerations with a knife, her mummified remains were found near the Swanee River State Park. Now, y'all, these are the names of women known to have been murdered by a man born in Burlington, Vermont, on November 24th of 1946. That man's birth name, Theodore Robert Cowell. But all of you know him as one of the most infamous serial killers in history. Ted Bundy. Bundy was a prolific serial killer, rapist, kidnapper, and necrophile who murdered well over 30 people in the 1970s. And this is the story of the reign of his terror. And let me tell you, Bundy is someone I personally have studied since I was a tot, if you will, very young. Uh, the first book I ever read on true crime was A Stranger Beside Me by Ann Rule. 
and uh, she actually worked with Bundy. And so I'm super excited about uh, this episode in particular. Bundy was the illegitimate son of Eleanor Louise Cowell. And at the age of four, Bundy was sent to live with his grandparents, who never spoke of his biological father. It's believed that this is where the seeds of his pathology were planted. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring that up, Mike, because later on in his life, psychiatrists who studied Bundy feel it's likely his grandfather molested him at a young age, though that was never admitted to by Bundy or proven. Uh, he occasionally, in his childhood, exhibited disturbing behavior. And at a very early age, he would often take knives from the kitchen. He'd leave them in different places around the house. It was just kind of weird. And then his childhood neighbor, Sandy Holt, described him as a bully. She said he liked to terrify people. He liked to be in charge. He liked to inflict pain and suffering and fear. Bundy was also a precocious young man and possessed an intelligence charm and he was a good looking guy and that allowed him to easily manipulate people. Now in the early 1970s, he began a crime spree that would last for years. He targeted young, attractive females. He would break into their homes and lure them into his car with a false identity. And these crimes were so brutal, as we read in the beginning, as we described each of those few murders that we just described. But after abducting his victims, he would often torture them sexually and ultimately ultimately kill them by strangulation or blunt force trauma. He had necrophilic tendencies and told authorities that he would often return to the bodies of his victims and carry out further sexual acts on their corpses. Yeah, he described himself as, you know, later on in life, the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet. And that's a quote direct from Ted Bundy. His crimes certainly prove that that is an accurate statement. I want to go back up to Mike's statement about the necrophilia and as the psych major i've learned that and this was many years ago that i was a psych major but that totally negates rejection he can't be rejected from a dead body no they're always with him it allows him to violate them whenever he wants and then that empowers him and so what happens when you get empowered You, you want more yeah So, during the spring and summer of 1974, police in the Pacific Northwest were in a state of panic. This empowered man took over, and young women at colleges across Washington and Oregon were disappearing, and the authorities had few leads to go on. Yeah, and and I want to just say something on what Cindy just said, and it's very similar to uh, what Dahmer said as the reason he uh, ate his -hmm. victims and also the reason he killed them and kept a lot of their trophies. And that was, they can never leave me. Right. He had such a fear of people leaving him 
And he knew the only way I could always keep them with me is if I killed them yeah. and kept their bodies or kept body parts. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not as uncommon as you would think, even amongst serial killers. Right. Well, and I can, you know, we the other day did the uh, Son of Sam uh, killing spree and talked about the terror and fear being stoked by the media and everything that was going on during during those crimes. I, I can't imagine what it was like for these women on college campuses in uh, that part of the country, knowing this guy was on the, uh, was on the loose and had been so aggressive. I mean, we talked about son of Sam with six murders in 13 months. Bundy is piling up, you know, uh, you know, LeBron like statistics here uh, early on. I mean, in just six months, six women had been abducted. Panic reached a fever pitch when the Janice Ann Ott and Denise Marie Naslin were taken in broad daylight from a crowded beach at Lake Sammamish State Park. That day, though, while committing the boldest of his abductions yet, he might have made his first mistake. Boy, he sure did. Uh, several other women were at the beach. It was It was busy that day, and it was a bunch of... Uh, what you would call Ted Bundy, perfect uh, kidnapping, killing women there. And so he had a profile and he liked a certain type of of female. And there was tons of them there that day. So several other women who were at that beach, they remember being approached by a man who had tried and failed to lure them to his car. Now, when police interrogated them or, or talked to them to get a statement, they said he was an attractive young man. He had his arm in a sling. His vehicle was a brown Volkswagen Beetle, and the name he gave them was Ted. Police quickly shared the man's description with the public and received information from four separate people identifying him as the same Seattle resident, Ted Bundy. These four people included Bundy's ex-girlfriend, a close friend of his, one of his co-workers, and a uh, psych TA or professor that had taught him uh, at UW. So, I mean, looks like they've got him, Jim. They've got four IDs on him. Yeah, so they were in, actually in, inundated with tips. They needed to follow through with all of them seriously. And when they looked into Bundy, they saw a clean-cut law student. No criminal record. He just didn't fit the profile. This guy was put together. He was not only smart, but he was attractive. Why would he need to kill all these women, Cindy Overton? He's a good-looking guy. He's a law student. Certainly he can get women any day of the week that he wants just by going to the local singles bar. Well, apparently he had issues. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Definitely had some issues. It wasn't enough for him, and as a psych major, I'm sure that that that's something that you, you studied. That that part doesn't even play in the equation to certain psyches. Well, no, in his psyche, he's not wanted. He's not loved, and he he's not going to get the attention, and he doesn't want to set himself up for that failure. So he's just going to take it. Right. And so because he didn't fit the profile with law enforcement, they allowed this 
handsome, clean-cut law student to continue preying upon unsuspecting victims. I would say that they were suspecting at, by this time, I hope. It would be like Derek Todd Lee when he was in Baton Rouge. Mm. We were all suspecting. Mm. You were looking 360 all the time. Oh, yeah. Head on a swivel. Head on a swivel. Mm. But he, I mean, he fooled everyone. Um, the cops, the women uh, he manipulated, and uh, even the wife who married him uh, through a bunch of murders. He was, quote, happily married. Pretty incredible. Yeah. The two lives, the separate lives he was able to, to live. Definitely. So let's figure out how Ted Bundy became Ted Bundy. So Bundy's mother was Eleanor Louise Cowell, and his father is unknown. His grandparents were ashamed of their daughter's out-of-wedlock pregnancy, so they decided to raise them as their own child. Yeah, this is a huge uh, part of this. So Bundy does not know that the person he believes is his older sister is actually his birth mother, and the parents that he believes he has are actually his grandparents. And uh, he learns the truth eventually. For nearly all of his childhood, he believed his mother to be his sister. So his grandfather regularly beat both his mother and Bundy. When Bundy was just five years old, his mother, who he thought was his sister, Eleanor, decided to take him and run away from Vermont um, to go live with cousins in Tacoma, Washington. And there in Tacoma, Washington, she, Eleanor met a hospital cook. His name was Johnny Bundy. And they got married. Johnny agreed to formally adopt young Ted and gave him his last name, the last name that he is infamous for now anytime you hear bundy that's the first thing that pops in everybody's head or married with children one of those two shows so we know it's not al bundy you're thinking of if we're talking about true crime right so ted didn't care much for his stepdad he he actually saw him as ignorant and capable of earning a real living so there was a major lack of respect there the remainder of bundy's childhood um, gives there's conflicting ap- accounts and um, different biographers have different things said and but there's one consistency in these various accounts and that is Bundy's claim of his own that he had very dark fantasies mm. and these affected him very powerfully and he described himself as a loner who would stalk the seedy streets at night to spy on women peeping Tom. Yes. In which you will also find consistent in many serial killers. They start out as peeping toms. And looking at pornography wherever he could wherever he could find it. So, you know, whatever those quote dark fantasies were, uh he was somehow able to suppress them and uh and not make that obvious to those around him. And many who remember Bundy from high school describe him as reasonably well-known, and well-liked. He graduated from high school in 65. He enrolled in nearby University of Puget Sound, 
He spent one year there before transferring to UW to study Chinese. Yeah. So <laughs> that speaks to his, you know, brain power right there. And maybe even his little, uh, a little bit of foresight, uh, course china now if you know chinese you probably get a pretty good job because they deal with so much uh, uh to do with the united states and in 1968 he made a trip back east and he learned that the woman he believed to be his sister y'all was actually his mother now many believe this revelation is what sent ted bundy over the edge i completely agree with that um i can tell you that a normal person with no psychological dark fantasies or anything like that, that would might would put them over the edge in, in many ways. But with him, many believe that was the turning point. However, there is suspicion that at the age of 14, he possibly committed his first crime against a human. Um, she was an 11 year old girl that would lived right down the street from him. And she went missing from her bedroom. At this time, Bundy's back at the University of Washington, and he began dating a woman named Elizabeth Clofer. And she was a divorcee from Utah who worked as a secretary at the School of Medicine on campus. And later, Clofer was among the first to report Bundy to the police as a suspect. Yeah, she was one of those four people that uh, after the— the Lake Sammamish crimes, she was one of the four to give uh, his name to uh, to the police uh, when they determined that uh, that he didn't fit the profile. Yeah. So and and think about this and put yourself in the position of Elizabeth, uh, you know, when they had a name, Ted, and then they had a description of a car, a brown Volkswagen bug and Volkswagens back then were more common than they are now, but a very recognizable car and probably the Brown wasn't the, the best color, you know, the, I'm sure the Herbie cars were the, the most common, the white, uh, bugs. So you're dating a guy and he fits the description. He's good looking. Oh, he drives a Volkswagen bug and guess what? His name is Ted and the Volkswagen bug is Brown. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's something you may want to report to the cops. Well, and you're yeah. sensing some mm-hmm. dark tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure by then she's seen some kind of dark tendency. Oh, yeah. He's yes. handcuffing her to bedpost and everything, yeah. I'm sure. Well, but I'm sure also <laughs> what made it really hard for cops is we're, you know, we're talking about 1973, 1974. Only a small percentage of, uh, of kids at that time are taking the next step to college. This is somebody who was... Uh, enrolled in law school or, you know, eventually, I don't know at the, at the, at the point that actually at the point they gave uh, uh, that information, I think he was enrolled in in law school. And so you would, you would look at Ted Bundy and you would think you would project that he's got a pretty successful life in front of him as a lawyer. And uh, why in the heck would he, be involved in the the kind of stuff they're talking about. But uh, in 73, Bundy was accepted to the University of Puget Sound Law School. So there you go, Mike. Uh, But after a few months, he stopped attending classes. And then in January of 74, girls started to disappear. Yeah. And, you know, Bundy, he's 
truly unique, y'all, within the history of serial killers. And that's what really spurred my interest in Bundy specifically. I study serial killers. It's what I do. I absolutely uh, am fascinated by that side of the, the criminal mind and the criminal psyche. And here's this guy. He graduates from the University of Washington. He gets accepted into law school, and he seemingly has this life in front of him that is just perfect. He's dating, uh, you know, a a girl who has it going on herself. Uh, she's got a good job, and he's got a good career in front of him. As soon as he gets out of law school, uh, as a matter of fact, he was not only smart he was super smart his iq y'all tested later by a psychologist registered at 136 now for those of you that don't understand the iq testing ranges 140 and over is considered genius anything above 130 is considered extremely gifted this was no dummy this was a guy that was four points off of genius with his iq had his whole world in front of him was good looking but and he was working political campaigns right yeah he was heavily involved in politics so in addition to all that, he had movers and shakers around him. He had people that had plans for him. As a matter of fact, he worked on, he was a Republican. He worked on a lot of Republican campaigns. He was being supported by senators and, and, uh, he would support them and just nowhere to go, but up for this guy. But then, but he was centering himself around powerful people. Right. Why do you do that? Most of the time when the when you have a narcissistic personality, we know that it's basically to give them power. They have power by association. Sure. And then of course it goes into not fitting the profile. So, but I want to go back a second because you said you read Anne Rule when you were like yes. four, 14 years old. Yes. Did you read that at school? No. Okay, good. Because if I was your teacher, you would have been going to the counselor's office. <laughs> oh, I, I read um, between 14 and probably 18. I read every single book she ever wrote. Uh, and she's written 40 books. Some of them not, you know, some of them she wrote after I got out of high school. But I got uh, uh, so into her writing. It was just unbelievable. And she's not paying us anything to say that. Um, but if she'd ever like to come on our show, we'd love to interview her. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, it's just something that just fascinated me. Yeah. Yeah. You were definitely red flagged for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on a list somewhere. Mike. Somebody was watching your ass. <laughs> so, yeah. The, whoever checked the books out at school, your librarian yeah. was like, uh, you need to watch that Chapman kid. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was getting them at the public library though. Well, was, they're still watching you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. not during that time. <laughs> they probably were. Maybe for other things. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> that back that back room. Oh yeah. <laughs> but um to get serious, um, Bundy's first known attack was actually not a murder. He just not just, but he assaulted a eighteen year old uh University of Washington student named Karen Sparks and he did some major damage. 
He broke into her apartment and bludgeoned her unconscious with a metal rod from her bed frame. That's some scary stuff to me. I mean, mm. taking that metal rod off of a bed frame. Shoot, that's scary stuff to me. And then he sexually assaulted her with it, and she lived, but she was she spent 10 days in a coma and has permanent disabilities because of it. Jeez. She get worse. Yeah. Yeah, it's steadily for sure progressing. Um, right after that, like a month after that, uh after the assault on Karen Sparks, Bundy broke into the apartment of another UW student named Linda Ann Healy. Bundy knocked her unconscious. He clothed her body and carried her out to his car. Uh, unfortunately, nobody saw him doing it. Um, she was never seen again, but part of her skull was discovered years later at one of the locations where Bundy was dumping bodies. Now, the Healy murder was just the beginning. Bundy continued to target female uh, students in the area, and he he developed a method. Remember, I told y'all how smart he was. He he was very methodical about what he did. He charmed the the women with his good looks, and he had a friendly smile. He uh, would put this cast on, even though he didn't need a cast. It was a fake cast because he wanted to appear disabled, which in the minds of females, now you are not a threat. That's right. As confirmed by the, uh, the psychologist major over here, uh, you are not a threat. And, and that's how smart he was. He, he knew that just naturally Mm -hmm. that if I put on this cast, their guard is going to be let down because who can't beat up a guy with one arm? You know, that's, that's what he's thinking. So, He'd ask him for help putting something in the in his car. They would go to help him, and then whack. Yeah, he would bludgeon them unconscious. Mm. And after that, he would bind, rape, and kill them, dumping their bodies in remote locations in the woods. And he would often, which is very common for many criminals, he would revisit these sites. But he, being the necrophile, would. Go have sex with them, with these decaying corpses. And in some cases, he would decapitate his victims and keep their skulls in his apartment, sleeping beside his trophies, which is, in his opinion, I guess, the ultimate possession um, was, you know, taking that life. So one of... Bundy's famous quotes is the ultimate possession was in fact the taking of the life and then the physical possession of the remains trophies yeah yeah I mean they they he had something and and they all take trophies remember that uh every serial killer in the history of serial killers takes some sort of trophy whether it's rings whether it's skulls, whatever, they have to have something. And remember, it's clothing. They find clothing a lot of times. So, yeah. Crazy. I mean, this he, he said this. He said, murder is not just a crime of lust or violence. It becomes possession. They are part of you. The victim becomes a part of you, and you two are forever one. And the grounds where you kill them or leave them become sacred to you and you will always be drawn back 
to them. Yeah. yeah some sick, some sick stuff. So over the next five months, he abducted and he murdered five, five female college students in the Pacific Northwest. Donna Gail Manson, uh, Susan Elaine Rancourt, Roberta Kathleen Parks, Brenda Carroll Ball, and George Ann Hawkins. And as far as the police knew, these were just disappearances. So they were just like wanting help for looking for these missing girls. So the Washington State Department of Emergency Services was asked to assist with the investigation. And Ted Bundy just so happened to work for the Washington State <laughs> oh my God. Department of Emergency Services. Imagine that. So he's, he's on the inside at the Department of Emergency Services monitoring their progress with the investigation without them obviously having a clue that he's there. So he'd also be able to find out more um, from his new girlfriend, Carol Ann Boone, who also worked at the Department of Emergency Services. The twice-divorced mother of two would end up dating Bundy on and off for years as the murders continued. So I don't know how he was bringing back trophies to their apartment or their home or wherever they were living while they were married. I, I, I don't know how the hell he he pulled that off. Maybe he stopped doing it during that period. It doesn't seem well, like he would have stopped doing anything. But You know, they find a way. It's I mean, Dahmer was living with his grandmother and had bodies all up in her basement. Um, you know, you just find a way. They, they find a way to do it. You'd be surprised. Uh, I'm sure he was hiding them in an attic. Well, think about it. it. You know, we all, we all live with spouses and, and, uh, I mean, not that I hide bodies, but if I wanted to hide a skull somewhere, I could probably get away with it without my wife knowing. I'm really scared now. No, I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm just saying it, it's not as really as hard as you would think. You could put it up in an attic somewhere. <laughs> People are going to search my attic now. I promise I'm not a serial killer. Send them in now, guys. Send them in now. Cindy and I are looking at each other like, who, who is this man across the table? First of all, yes, I've my, actually moved away a little bit. Put it in an attic. My in wife the corner. would find anything. <laughs> Inside of 30 minutes. Inside of 30 minutes. Okay, now I'm in a room with... Any any stupidity, you know. If I left a uh, a piece of clothing on the floor, she would she would. Find well, that's that that's probably true. But uh, anyhow, <laughs> um, just as some of the victims' bodies were being discovered in the woods, Budney gets accepted to law school in Utah. Perfect timing for him because the heat was kind of on. Uh, and he decided, yeah, it's probably a good time to go ahead and move to Salt Lake City, Utah, and that's just what he did. But he couldn't resist that urge. He mm -hmm. continued to rape and murder young women, including a, a hitchhiker in Idaho and four teenage girls in Utah during that time. Uh, Bundy's old girlfriend from back at UW, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Clofer, was one of the four people who had come forward with Bundy's name uh, when he was eliminated because he didn't fit the profile. Uh, but she learned, remember, she was from Utah and living in the state of Washington when he met her. She found out that he had relocated to Utah. 
And so she learns about these murders in Utah. So here's the guy that at the Lake Sammamish murders, she gives the police his name. Um, You know, he's head, he's got the brown Volkswagen and, uh, but he doesn't fit the profile, but then he moves to Utah and young girls start dying in Utah. So she once again decides to get in touch with the authorities um, to reaffirm her suspicion that it was Ted behind these killings. And y'all, we can't stress this enough right now that, uh, and I'm not throwing shade on any investigators or anything like that, but it's very important. And I'm sure they learned a lot of lessons on not locking in so hard on a profile that you think of the amount of murders that would not have been committed. How many lives would have been saved had that first tip when it came in, they really would have dove into Ted Bundy, maybe put a, a police officer shadowing him where he went. Maybe they'd catch him in the act, whatever. I know hindsight's 2020 and I get that, but it, it saddens me because it, it may have saved 30 or 40 lives in the long run in, in some estimates, uh, if they would have stopped him before he went to the university of Utah, uh, to Salt Lake city, Utah. Well, and certainly if back in the day they had had DNA. Oh yeah. 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 Well, we're talking a whole different ball game then, uh, because. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Anytime you, you do the brutality that he did when you're killing people, you're not, you're not shooting them in the head, you know, and leaving. I mean, he's, he's going up to corpses and having sex with them. Tons of DNA involved in that alone. But then the, the bludgeoning that he was doing and, and the brutality in which he killed these women, uh, there were many times that they would fight as much as they could. You know, they get the DNA under their fingernails, but DNA didn't exist back then. There was no way to tie that to anything. Right. Although he was smart, no fingerprints. Never one fingerprint did they find of Bundy's. Now there was a mounting pile of evidence pointing towards Ted Bundy. And when Washington investigators compiled their data, Bundy's name appeared at the very top of the suspect list. Unaware that law enforcement had some interest in him, Bundy continued killing. He had no idea that they were on to him. And he goes to Colorado from his home in Utah to murder more young women there. So finally, in August of 1975, Bundy was pulled over while driving recklessly through a Salt Lake City suburb. Um, And from my research, he would often try to do something and not be successful, and he would get angry, and he was always in his car. So I wonder if this time he had unsuccessfully, you know, attempted a murder right attempted a kidnapping of some sort you know um but anyway um police discovered mask handcuffs and blunt objects in his car 
So while that was not enough to arrest him, a police officer realized that Bundy was also a suspect in earlier killings and put him under surveillance. So finally, we get the surveillance, which was what we've been asking for. Right. And I think to your point, he was way too smart to have just driven around every day with the masks, handcuffs and blunt objects in the in the car. I mean, I think he was, uh, you know, he was very deliberate about when once he he decided he was doing something, then he did it. But he didn't act spontaneously. He uh, he acted with some discipline. And so I think you're probably right that that day uh, he was out looking uh, looking for some blood. So. And and I would also like to say on that particular in, incident, uh, number one, that I agree. I think that that police officer definitely stopped killing that night. Mm-hmm. I think that's where he was headed. But when the police officer asked him, you know, what are you doing? This is late at night, y'all. It's three o'clock in the morning, something like that. And he says, what are you doing? And Bundy uh, said that he was smoking dope. Oh. Pulled over to smoke dope. And I mean... Uh, this is before dope was legal. <laughs> so, you know, the, he would rather say that than what he was really doing. Well, I'm going to murder somebody. But uh, that was his excuse to the police as to why he was pulled over in the middle of the night. He wasn't. I, I've never saw anything about him getting high before mm-hmm. killings or anything. Did you ever see? Well, anything? it could have just been an excuse. Right. Uh, that was just the excuse he gave the police officer, whether he was, I mean, no, of course he wasn't smoking dope, uh, because well, he's about gonna, to go murder. But if somebody. you're going to tell somebody you're, yeah, you'd, you're smoking dope, then they, you need to have some dope there. <laughs> you, like, you would yeah, think, and, like and, and I don't know, maybe he did, you know, he might've been a dope smoker. Uh, he was definitely on something <laughs> as they say, he had to be on something to be doing what he was doing. Well, <laughs> by the time they did that, he had. Uh, he had gotten rid of the brown beetle, so I don't know what car he was driving at that point. But it wasn't the brown, the brown beetle. But they, uh, the cops, got the uh, records and found a, a bill of sale and were able to track down that he did, uh, that he did own the beetle during, uh, you know, he owned the brown beetle during the, the time period of the Washington killing. So. Um, so they were able to track that vehicle down, and even though that much time had gone by, they were able to discover hairs that matched three of the victims in that beetle. So with that evidence, they were able to put him in a lineup finally, where he was identified by one of the women who he had attempted to abduct. Very famous lineup, uh, and you can go online and just Google it. Uh, he he is in a stance he looks like a serial killer in that picture. Let's put it that way. I mean, everybody else is just standing there staring straight ahead. And Bundy's got this look like, Oh shit, they're going to cut You know, I'm caught. I mean, he just looks guilty of all the guys in that lineup. Anybody could point to the one out of place. And it was Bundy. Um, he was convicted of kidnapping and assault. And he was actually sent to prison while the police, they are starting to amass all this evidence and build this murder case against him. But but arrest didn't stop Ted Bundy from killing. He was soon able to, for the first of two times, y'all, in his life, escape from custody. So in 1977, he escaped from the law library at the courthouse in Aspen, Colorado. And from... 
what I can tell is he actually practiced jumping from his bed, like, you know, the upper bunk, um, to get his ankles prepared for this jump out the window. But because he was serving as his own lawyer, he had been allowed into the library during a break in his preliminary hearing, and he was supposedly researching the laws pertaining to his case. But the fact that he was his own counsel also meant he was unshackled. And when he saw his chance, he took it. Unbelievable. How long, how far was that jump? It was like 30 feet. 30 feet. feet. It was three stories high, yeah. 30 feet. I'm 100% sure of that, Mike. 30. Well, I guess he I guess feet. he did good training on that. Well, he was uh, a skier, so he's got those. It's a good point, you know, yeah. actually. Yeah, he was an avid skier, and that certainly helped. He had some strong calves mm-hmm. and, and, and all that. But that's high up, y'all. Think about stacking three basketball goals on top of each other. Mm-hmm. That's how high up he was. That's pretty, <laughs> yeah. three stories. Yeah. Also, it's just, you think about, they, they think they have, they think they probably have a serial killer. They don't have enough evidence to arrest him for murder. They arrest him for what they can arrest him for. But the guy's in jail in Aspen. I mean, it's, it's, that is not Angola, Jim. I mean, no, it is not. It is not Angola. So you you have someone you suspect of being a serial murderer, and you've got him in the library without handcuffs on. Crazy. Probably a 75-year-old librarian uh, barely paying attention to him. Right. I mean, it just uh, – and maybe the the thought was it would be complete insanity to try and leap to the street from where they were. And if it was 30 feet, you would assume most humans couldn't make that – You know, unless, unless you're holding Michael Jordan, it's probably not going to – be able to make that jump. But. That's right. So we're going to play a real quick clip right here. Uh, and what you're going to hear in it is the breaking news. This is the original clip from when Bundy escaped from that Aspen jail. And there's a manhunt out for him. And I think you're going to find it interesting because now the panic has set in that Ted Bundy has escaped. And it sounded like this. Bundy jumped out of this second-story window at the front of the Pitkin County Courthouse this morning. He was scheduled for a court appearance and apparently had been locked into the law library by sheriff's deputies while attorneys were arguing a motion to strike the death penalty. Witnesses say he left in a hurry. However, nobody saw him open the window, and he escaped clean in an unknown direction. At both ends of town, the sheriff's department put up roadblocks and searched each vehicle leaving the town of Aspen. As of late this afternoon, Bundy was still missing, but a court clerk said they'd arrested nine people on warrants and confiscated 200 pounds of marijuana. All day long, County Sheriff Dick Keenest has been circling over the wooded hills in a helicopter looking for the suspected rapist killer, but with no success. Ted Bundy, a Washington state resident, was convicted last year of the kidnap assault of a young woman from Salt Lake City. He's also the prime suspect in a series of murders of young women in Washington state, as well as the suspect in a murder case here in Aspen. This is Ward Lucas reporting from Aspen. But Bundy had a real habit of speeding. He uh, drove recklessly and, again, another compulsion, couldn't stop himself from, from driving recklessly. So he had stolen a car and less than a week after the uh, escape in Aspen... He was spotted driving rec- recklessly and was captured 
again. So his first escape didn't last all that long. Right. And the interesting thing, Mike, for me and Cindy about that clip was they mentioned that as they were searching for Ted Bundy and they were pulling cars over, although at that point in time they had not caught him, they did mention they got over 200 pounds of weed confiscated from other people that they were pulling <laughs> over and checking their cars. And this is in Colorado, y'all. Think about that. Think about the irony Bloody of that now. <laughs> I found that very ironic when I was re-listening to that, uh, that clip. So on December 30th of 1977, Ted Bundy took advantage of a light holiday staffing at the jail where he was being held now in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And he pulls off his second escape. He had been working on this plan for months. And Bundy was a planner, as y'all are seeing now. After carefully studying a map of the prison. Remember, he's almost genius level. He can probably look at that map and memorize it. Uh, Bundy realizes that his cell was directly beneath the living quarters of the prison's chief jailer. The two rooms only had a crawl space to separate them, and Bundy traded with another inmate to get a small hacksaw while his cellmates were exercising. <laughs> yeah, of all things, is that not ironic? Is there a true value right there? On the, <laughs> um, this is like, what, like six months after yeah. his first escape. Yeah, so he, he gets that small hacksaw, and while his cellmates were exercising or showering, he would work away at the ceiling, scraping away layer after layer of plaster. The crawl space he made was very small, y'all. Of course, after he escaped, they find this crawl space. When I tell you this thing was small, again, you can go on the Internet and you can actually see the pictures of this. It was teeny tiny. So Bundy being Bundy, figures out, I got to lose some weight. He wasn't a big guy to begin with, but he had to lose a lot of weight to get through this thing. He starts cutting back on his meals in order to lose enough weight to fit through that little crawl space he made. He lost over 30 pounds. Yeah, and he wasn't overweight to begin with, so this was really, that was major weight, and it, he probably was eating just bites a day. If, if eating at all. And yeah. so apparently um, at this time, maybe his weight loss kind of enticed Carolyn Boone to get involved in the picture again. And remember, she was the one that worked aside him with emergency services and helped give him information back in the day. And um, she was smuggling in money to him. And so when he was ready, Bundy finished the hole and crawled up into the chief jailer's room. And he found it unoccupied, and he swapped his prison jumpsuit for a jailer's civilian clothes and strolled right out of the jail's front door. And I just got to say this. Uh, if that doesn't speak to the manipulation expertise of Ted Bundy, mm -hmm. nothing will. Mm -hmm. You've actually got a woman that you – it wasn't your girlfriend. This is a girl that you worked with in college. Uh, y'all became friends and whether she had romantic feelings for him at that point, I don't know, but she knows he's in jail and all this stuff is going down with him being a killer of numerous women. Yet she is willing to give him money to aid in an escape. That's and, how slick he was. And she also works to protect people. Yes. I mean, but uh, do you think she was just thinking she was giving him money to get like some Snickers? 
<laughs> I doubt it. Milky she, Ways, Milky Ways. She was like, smoking. she was like, you know, you're getting a little thin here. I need to give you some money yeah, so you buy can buy you some, some food. food. <laughs> give you something for the canteen. Put some money um, on your books. I'm, I'm thinking she knew the, she the knew plan. the plan. But you know, it, the other part of the genius of it was this happened on December 30th, and so you're in the middle of the holidays. So they cut staffing back. He knew they were cutting staffing back. So whatever it is, they're at half strength in terms of guards, what have you. He knew that uh, uh, that the jailer was uh, was out at some function. So he planned this meticulously. He got his body in the position he needed to get his body in to be able to do it. But it's unbelievable. There was some serendipity here, too, because, you know, he uh, he's able to uh, to get into the jailer's uh, room and find plain clothes that fit him from the jailer that he could cha- he could just turn uh, and turn around and change into, and so he literally put on the jailer's clothes and walked right out the front door That's of uh, of the jail. And so you know, this time he didn't hang around the area. He wasn't going to make any of the mistakes that he made in Aspen. He stole a car immediately and he got out of town and he decided that he was going to make his way to Florida. So it had been his plan to lay low. He uh, told that to uh, multiple uh, psychiatrists that uh, talked to him once he was, he was finally caught. He wanted to, uh, to lay low in Florida and let some of this, uh, some of this blow over, but his, uh, you know, his drive, his compulsion toward violence was just too strong. And on January 15th of 1978, he commits, you know, possibly his uh, his most gruesome day. He uh, This is just two weeks after his escape. So he holds out for, for two weeks. He breaks into the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State in Tallahassee. Within the span of just 15 minutes, he sexually assaults and kills Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy, bludgeoning them with firewood and strangling them with stockings. That wasn't enough, though. He then assaulted Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler, who both suffered horrific injuries, including broken jaws and missing teeth, but he didn't kill them. He then broke into the apartment of Cheryl Thomas, who lived several blocks away, and beat her so badly, she lost her hearing permanently. (laughs) And so just two weeks after the escape in Colorado, this is what he does on the campus of Florida State. Yeah, and let me, okay, this is a huge, huge part of this story, and to me, one of the biggest swings in this story, and that is everybody who knows anything about Ted Bundy knows about the Florida state Chi Omega house murders, uh, and beatings. So it was, it was four victims total. Two of them were sleeping bed. He beat him, killed him, uh, with firewood, but very few people know that he beat a girl about 20 minutes after that, while the police were on the scene. So let me tell you the quick story. And Mike just mentioned Cheryl Thomas, who was in an apartment 
this apartment was about a street over from the Chi Omega sorority house. Uh, Ted Bundy did everything he did in the Chi Omega sorority house. And he was still so bloodthirsty that he heard the cops coming, jumped out that window, ran down the street and could not resist going into another house of a female. So he breaks into the apartment of Cheryl Thomas, starts beating the shit out of her. Someone saw him going in the window and breaking in that apartment. They call the police. The police put out an APB and the guys at the Chi Omega house, the police there, get it over the radio. There's a guy breaking in on, let's call it Oak Street. They're like, wait a minute, Oak Street's a street over. So they tell a police officer that was on the scene, go check it out. He goes over there. Sure enough, there's a break in. He walks in. Bundy sees the police officer, jumps out the window, and the cop had a choice. I can render aid to this female, or I can go after Bundy. Now, of course, he's going to radio this in to the guys, but... By the th- they're also on a crime scene. I mean, it, this is anarchy around here. Um, and I'm sure that's just what he did, but he did not foot pursuit with Bundy. He rendered aid, and it ended up being the right decision because the female, though she lost her hearing permanently, she did live. And it may have been uh, the direct actions of that officer rendering aid that helped her to live, although... Bundy was not done yet. The officer also avoided getting bludgeoned himself. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I don't know if that He had a gun was. instead of a piece of firewood. <laughs> so, um, then on February 8th, 1978, Bundy abducted 12 year old Kimberly Diane Leach from her middle school and murdered her, concealing her body on a pig farm. Days later, his reckless driving caught the attention of police, and when they realized that the plates belonged to a stolen car, they pulled him over, having no idea at the, uh, no idea at the time that it was Bundy. And they find the IDs of three dead women in his vehicle that linked him directly to the Florida State University crimes. So we're going to play a clip of Bundy just before the execution where he shows the crazy struggle in the mind of a serial killer when he was asked about his youngest known victim, Kimberly Diane Leach. So here's that. One of the the final uh, murders that you committed, of course, uh, was apparently little Kimberly Leach, 12 years of age. Uh, I think the the public outcry is greater there because an innocent child was taken from a from a playground. What did you feel after that? Was there were there the normal emotions three days later? Where were you, Ted? I. I can't really talk about that right now. That's who we are. That's too painful. I would like to uh, 
I'd like to be able to convey to you what that that uh, that experience is like, but I can't. I won't okay. be able to talk about that. Okay. As we've learned throughout this, is that Bundy was unusually organized and a calculating criminal who used his extensive knowledge of law enforcement methodologies to elude identification and, cra- and capture for years. And his crime scenes were distributed over large geographic areas. His victim count had risen to at least 20. We could probably argue many more than that before it became clear that numerous investigators and widely disparate Boom. Bundy's assault methods of choice were blunt trauma and strangulation. One thing about blunt trauma and strangulation doesn't make a ton of noise. And so this isn't somebody who was going to carry a gun, shoot people. Uh, He was um, he was meticulous. The things that he was using as weapons could be found commonly around most households. So he avoided the firearms. He didn't make the noise. He'd never leave ballistic evidence. Um, He did meticulous research. He explored the surroundings in minute detail of uh, uh, where he wanted to to attack. So he he would look for safe sites, um, safe opportunities to seize the victims. And then also his choice of where he would dispose. Because remember, he would go back time and again to the locations where he disposed of bodies uh, to sickly go and have sex with those decomposing bodies. He left minimal evidence. I think Jim mentioned earlier that his fingerprints were never found at a single crime scene. The police never got his fingerprints, nor really any other, I mean, tons and tons of circumstantial evidence, but never any, you know, uh, incontrovertible evidence that, uh, that, you know, the physical nature that would prove his guilt. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I'll say relative to that, the only, the only thing I would maybe disagree with on that, front is I don't think he's using firearms, whether they made any noise or no noise at all. One thing with Bundy was he enjoyed blunt force trauma. He enjoyed strangling you. As a matter of fact, he would like relive and masturbate to the thought of watching women gasp for air. It was in his psyche to make you suffer. Shooting you is too quick. That's too fast. Uh, it definitely aided in his ability to stay covert and not get caught. But I don't know that he's choosing anything but blood force trauma and strangulation, no matter what the options were. That was how he got off. That was how he played. So Bundy frequently revisited the bodies of those he abducted. He would, you know, groom them, perform sex acts on the corpse until decomposition and destruction by wild animals made any further interactions impossible. So that was something that also aided in his ability to stay covert. Now, at least 12 of his victims were decapitated and their severed heads kept as 
mementos or trophies in his apartment. And on a few occasions, he would break into homes late at night and bludgeon the victims as they slept. So all this speaks to what I just talked about with his his insane appetite for just horrid suffering of these females. And one of the things that when I was, you know, because I'm not really a true crimer, I'm, I didn't really know much about him before studying for this. Well, you're killing it. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> Please don't kill me. <laughs> um, is for a man like this, the fantasy of it, right? He has this fantasy built up in his head. And when he commits the crime, of course, he's, he's never changed his MO. He's always bludgeoning. He's always strangling. He's not, you know, changing things up because he has this fantasy. And the fantasy just doesn't play out each time this, exactly the way he wanted it to. So what happens? He's got to go do it again. And once he's done, he still has this fantasy. And so when he goes back to them to have sex with them or if he is unsuccessful and he still masturbates it's in his head this fantasy he's playing in his head and so he never had success with that and so potentially and this is just me thinking off the cuff he changed age ranges when he got to a different location because maybe that would help him get this fantasy not quite sure we're not in his head Jim, you seem to be the closest one. <laughs> what do you think? I can't confirm that. <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And and actually, I've thought that same way, a very similar way to what you thought as to why those age differences right. existed. Right. Um, For sure. So, But ultimately, he did confess to many murders before his death. Um, Bundy denied certain killings. Uh, despite physical evidence of trying him to the tying him to the crimes and alluded to others that were never substantiated. And ultimately, all of this led authorities to suspect Bundy killed anywhere from 30 to 40 women. And as we've said several times, it's potentially way more than that, making him one of the most infamous and obviously terrifying serial killers in American history and probably world history. Uh, uh, probably. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't think of one more notorious than right. Bundy. Uh, people who have absolutely no interest at all in any crime related to genre, true crime or otherwise still have heard the name Bundy. That's how, uh, that's how infamous he is. And we're going to play it one more clip for you guys. And this clip is during his trial, and it, to me, shows the real Ted Bundy. So as we've told you throughout this story, he, you've got two completely different people here, completely different. Bundy was unique in that way. There was no sign uh, of a serial killer on one end of that guy's spectrum on the other side he was a total monster this clip is some outbursts that he had in court where the monster comes out uh i apologize for the audio it's a little hard to hear some parts of it look it was 1970s the audio sucked in the 1970s but uh i think you will really get the chills when you hear bundy in court 
during an outburst, and here's that. Well, and, and amazingly, because he had a law degree, he was uh, able to decide to defend himself rather than having outside counsel defend him. And that was probably a big mistake, but again, um, uh, all's well that ends well for the public. There, I, I would. It, how horrible would it have been if somehow he had he had managed to uh, uh, to get himself off? Because again, despite everything we're talking about, there wasn't a lot of actual hard evidence that they could tie to him at. Uh, at the time, because he had been so meticulous with uh, with everything that he had done. But uh, ultimately, he was convicted and uh, placed on death row and sent to Rayford Prison in, uh, in Florida. Many of you will be happy to know that one of the things that happened to him there was that he was immediately abused by other prisoners. There's a story of him being gang raped by a group of at least four uh, prisoners. Yeah, among the sort of crazy antics. You just heard a clip with one side of those antics, but, uh, but Bundy started out when they put Carol Ann on the stand, uh, proposing to her with her saying yes. So he actually, uh, gets engaged during the, uh, uh, the trial and married. Um, and they would later, um, have a, uh, uh, have a child. So there is, I don't, I don't know where they are or what their name is, but somewhere out there in all likelihood, because this is 1978 we're talking about, there's a, uh, uh, there's a child of Ted Bundy uh, walking the streets. So he was finally executed, electric chair on January 24th, 1989. He went through all kinds of uh, of legal processes, appeals. Uh, I mean, again, 78 is when that happened and he doesn't get the chair until 89. So you have, you have 11 years worth of, uh, of legal actions that, uh, that he's put in the state of Florida through trying to, uh, to buy himself more time. There's a period in which he actually works with the FBI to help them apprehend Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer uh, in the Northwest, who was working much of that same territory that had been worked uh, previously by Bundy. Um, and Bundy gave the FBI some uh, some pretty good insights that ultimately helped them in their tracking down of, uh, of Ridgway. I'm just hoping in those 11 years he was gang raped every day. Every day? Every day. Well, Jim, as the, uh, as the Ted Bundy, Bundy connoisseur, at the table, we've listed a, a number of uh, movies uh, or series that have been uh, about Bundy. Is there is there one in there that you would recommend as your favorite? You know, there's actually two that I would really recommend. The first one 
was the first movie I can remember watching this, and this was a made-for-TV movie. It came out uh, in 1986, so I was 12 when it came out, uh, and it's called The Deliberate Stranger. I can remember to this day sitting on my couch watching that when it premiered on, I think it was ABC, but it was a Maper TV movie played by Mark Harmon. You can probably still find you can't, it. You can't have Gibbs from NCIS playing. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, he was, Gibbs he was the best Ted Bundy. And I mean, that was really, Oh, it was unbelievable. He, he, Mark Harmon nailed it. Uh, so if you have not watched the 1986 version, cause there's tons of versions. And then you heard us mention Anne rules book, the stranger beside me. And the reason she named it that was she worked with Ted Bundy in college on a, uh, political campaign and they were raising money together for a Republican politician. So she knew him very well and wrote the book, The Stranger Beside Me. Well, a movie was that was a made into a movie in 2003, and it's actually pretty good uh, as well. So I would recommend those two. And just a couple of things that I, I did behind the scenes and my two co-hosts for today don't even know about is I, I got some obscure facts about Ted Bundy that, uh, that we didn't mention. Um, one of them is that he could have escaped the, that death sentence. The 12-year-old girl, Kimberly Leach, the last victim of Ted Bundy, they made him a plea bargain in which all he had to do was admit to the killing of Kimberly Leach, and they would give him basically life in prison and not execute him. Ted Bundy refused to admit that. Now, let me let me make this real clear for everybody out there. He definitely killed Kimberly Leach. They had more on Kimberly Leach as far as evidence than anybody else he was accused or convicted of killing. They recovered the girl's blood, clothing, and skin fiber in the van that he had. Um, But he refused to admit it. And you may ask yourself why. Well, I played you that clip earlier where the interviewer, the journalist, asked him to talk about the Kimberly Leach uh, killing and he said I can't talk about that I'm not going to talk about that it hurts too much and if you watch that clip at the very end if you can if we can if it, it gets attached to the show notes mm-hmm. you can literally see like a demonic look in his eyes it's really scary yeah we'll definitely uh, also attach that to the show notes but you bring up a good point and that is uh he had something in him Absolutely. that would come out at certain times. And when, when Kimberly Leach was brought up, it was triggered. It was triggered. And I don't know, you know, nobody, everybody can speculate on what went on with that poor 12 year old girl, but it must've been horrific for Ted Bundy to not even want to talk about it. Right. Right. So, uh, but very interesting that he could have gotten out of the electric chair had he just admitted to that, never would admit to it. Um, and also Gary Ridgeway, as we brought up the Green River Killer, uh, he actually uh, helped uh, police locate Ridgeway uh, and also gave tips into the motiva- motivation and psychology of Ridgeway. He advised them to wait for the killer to return to a fresh grave and said that Ridgeway would most likely visit the place again. The sacred ground. 
Yeah. And um, in 1991, a movie called Silence of the Lambs came out, and that was roughly based off of Gary Ridgway. Mm -hmm. So maybe in the future, we'll do a Gary Ridgway um, uh, story for you. So that's just a little little fact. If that was based on Ridgway, then the Hannibal Lecter character is kind of the Ted Bundy character. Correct. That's exactly right. That's kind of scary. (laughs) Barber beans. (laughs) Fava and a nice and a nice pre-show we talked about these people always blaming the moms do we have anything to add about i mean because i think how old was his mom when she got pregnant she was obviously young young. yeah i don't don't, young but not something that you know not 12 yeah i mean not not something that that uh, young enough that he could pass as her brother, but, right? You know, but but not so young that it twelve. You know, she might have been seventeen or okay. something, eighteen. Okay. okay. So, okay. yeah. Silence of the lambs. Have the lambs stopped screaming, Clarice? I love. <laughs> I do love that movie. Oh, that's a great. Yes. That's a great movie. Yes, I think what. One of the things that makes him so creepy, but also at the same time popular, if that's the the right word, is that he was a good-looking guy. Yeah. Um, I was looking at some of the other movies. They have Zac Efron played him in a movie. Yeah. I mean, if Zac Efron plays you in a movie, you're yeah. You know, that's not he doesn't he's not serial killer type. Right. Zac Efron. I don't think so, Zac. Anyway, um, this isn't you know Berkowitz, Gacy. Uh, yeah, uh, Ridgeway. I mean, it's an entirely different um, look that could disarm victims. And I'm sure as many of those women walked toward that beetle, you know, yeah, <laughs> they had very different thoughts in their head about what was going to happen than, than what actually happened. It's just no doubt. No doubt. So. Amazing. Thank y'all for uh, listening today and and uh, sharing our content everywhere that you share it. Uh, you know, please, if you think about it and you'd like to do it, we love reviews. So please review us on uh, whatever platform you're listening to this on. And uh, we would appreciate that so very much. Thank you, Miss Cindy Everton, for coming on and joining us as a co-host today, filling in for What's the his name? great What's his name? Woody Everton, who is not with us today. I think you did wonderful. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank, thank you, Cindy. Yeah, I think we'll thank you for uh, having me. We'll get He's, some uh, some write-ins me? that say, uh, uh, you know, to uh, potentially move over, make Woody. the make the move and, and replace the other Overton. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get. A, I'm trying to get a deep voice. That here. guy. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah. A little more whiskey. Uh, Need a little more whiskey. And cigarettes. <laughs> Cigars. <laughs> cigarettes. Yeah. Much laugh. Yeah. There's only one Woody Overton voice. Is that Thank about God. it? God. That's right. That's right. Uh, but thank you very much. We appreciate you. And until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. I'm Cindy Overton. And I'm Mike Agavino. For real life, real crime daily. Peace. Peace.